want here is a current debate within, um, within centre-left parties in Europe generally and within the British Labour Party about what is to be done in the, in the, to respond to the crisis and more generally to the political uh, difficulties of centre-left parties. In a, in a period of regional global market integration uh, and in addition to the economic crisis, centre-left parties have found it very difficult to elaborate any form of coherent policy. In many respects, centre-left parties have been left in a position of being the Conservative Party, small c, trying to hang on to what they've had, what they've won in previous rounds of political conflict, uh, unable to articulate an alternative vision. Um, the electoral consequences of this are very apparent in Europe. The Democratic Party in, in Italy was meant to win last year and failed spectacularly. They're in power and coalition, but they're in a very vulnerable and weak position. Uh, and this French socialists in France demonstrate that for the centre-left, the only thing worse than losing is winning. Um, the problems have been particularly sharp, I think, for the British Labour Party because the new Labour project was meant to have addressed this issue. How do you combine equity and efficiency uh, in a modern economy in a, in a globally integrating world? And the new Labour response was deemed to be uh, an embrace of international markets, global markets, combined with a reliance on well-funded public services to ensure that everybody uh, gains fitness to compete successfully in the, in the global competitive game. The crisis, I think, has been particularly traumatic for, for this project because it undermines the very building blocks. Um, probably the greatest supporter of financial services in the UC in Britain in the last 20 years was Tony Blair. Um, and the new Labour government in general, and the failure, uh, the economic crisis and the financial nature of that crisis in particular has holed the new Labour project uh, under the water. And ironically, it's proved to be far more disruptive for the Labour Party than it has been for the Conservative Party. Now, there's been a lot of debate uh, in the centre-left generally in Europe uh, and in the British Labour Party, which I know some of the participants, which is... Um, in the sense where this paper began, um, about what is to be done. They're seeking a more radical, more fundamental alternative strategy rather than simply focusing on um, managing the economy more effectively as the Conservatives claim, which doesn't have much plausibility at the moment. Um, and what they focused on, or what has been offered and is internally being fought through within the Labour Party policy-making circles, um, is the potential of economic industrial democracy as a way of changing the nature of the game, a fundamental reorientation of how you manage your economy in a globalizing world. Now, the reason this matters, it could be just a, a few people kicking around ideas. Uh, it matters to some, to, if, it ma if it's going to, it isn't officially Labour Party policy yesterday, but it is yet, but it is being pressed by John Crudus, who is uh, the head of the Labour Party Policy Review. Uh, the review is ongoing for the best part of two years and we're awaiting an outcome because the internal struggle is so intense. Uh, and, but I, what I thought was it might be worthwhile examining the extent to which this is actually a feasible strategy. I don't mean economically will it work, but politically in terms of policy making, in terms of uh, legal restrictions, in terms of the role of the European Union, in terms of uh, surviving in highly uh, integrated markets and the competition that follows from that, whether this is really a feasible, plausible strategy at all. Uh, now, what they focus on 
as ever in these policy debates, they are often quite general in terms of discussion. But what they're really referring to and what they're drawing on is something known in the literature uh, broadly as the European model of industrial relations, or industrial democracy, rather. Sometimes economic democracy, sometimes industrial democracy. And what this means in practice is a view of the company um, as a community, uh, workers as citizens, uh, and as citizens they're entitled to substantial input into the decision-making process. So it's a highly, this is very much from the begins with a very political understanding of the world and of, of uh, corporate life. What it means in practice in Europe is either board-level employee representation, so in countries like uh, Sweden, for example, in larger firms you have three, three uh, employee representatives on the board, um, or, and or, and the mix is very diverse across Europe, the pattern is, is, is extremely varied. Uh, but in many, many, the majority of countries in the European Union, there are works councils endowed with substantial rights, consultation <coughs> rights being the minimum, uh, all the way up to co-decision rights in relation to certain aspects of um, corporate policy making, such as typically co-decision where it exists, and it is less common to say the least, co-decision, but it covers things like social policy, uh, renew, uh, pay principles, time management, uh, negotiations over working conditions, changes thereof, recruitment criteria, etc., etc. So there is a substantial element um, of genuine power exercised by the works councils. Obviously in this story, people who are examining the, the models immediately focus on Germany where this model of industrial economic democracy is um, developed most highly. And it is one of the interesting uh, phenomena when, when I try and keep track of what's going on here is that the, the in Ireland it seems to me the lot or the position of Germany in the, in the current general popular narrative is, is uh, as an unkind, slightly bullying uh, state looking after its own interests. In Britain on the centre left, it's, it's straight envy. How have they managed to do that and how can we replicate what it is that they've done? Um, now, explaining how the relative, and I think it is just a relative success of the German economy, is a tricky thing. Uh, and while the centre left tends to focus on industrial democracy as the source of German economic competitiveness, especially in the manufacturing sector, um, within the Conservative Party in Britain there's also a, a free enterprise group which points to Germany as a demonstration of the virtues of uh, labour market liberalisation uh, as a source of all, all good things in modern economy which proves two things. One is that beauty is in the eye of the beholder and more importantly that it's dangerous to look at just one economic domain without reference to contiguous domains if you're trying to analyse and understand what's going on. Okay, uh, now the presumed benefits of these institutions are two, and again, it's not always well specified why they will deliver this, but leaving that aside for the moment. First of all, the objectives for the centre-left uh, supports of this policy is workers will be empowered, better able to exercise control of conditions of their everyday lives, and also it's argued better place to gain a fairer <coughs> proportion of company earnings. Um, and the second uh, aspect of this and maybe the more surprising one, is the emphasis placed on industrial democracy as a, a competitive resource. The idea is that production will be more efficient because if you create well-designed institutions within a firm, you will generate uh, or enable forms of cooperation between 
management that employees which will enable the firm to adjust more effectively, more efficiently, more successfully to new competitive pressures. Okay, so there is a faith underlying this, there's a faith in politics, basically, because this is a very political analysis. The, the firm is a, is a community. Citizenship is the basis and the right when you belong to that community. Creating positive forms of interaction um, will generate actual practical productive uh, efficiency gains. Um, and underlying this, the backstory, a lot of the, the broader ideas uh, of people like John Crudus, who ultimately is a, his, his people, as I say, come from Mayo, and he's an extremely uh, Catholic man, and also Morris Glassman, who is most definitely not a Catholic man, uh, but is uh, be bewitched to some extent by Catholic social teaching. And it's interesting, they are very assertive about Catholic social teaching as the basis. It's a view of uh, corporate government institutions they believe should be designed to embody the balance of interests within the firm, and this facilitates cooperation between them. Now, I'm not quite sure whether they're wise within the internal politics of the Labour Party to emphasise Catholic social teaching, which, not, which is not generally admired uh, on the left in Britain. Um, and sometimes, Morris Glassman in particular, I think, likes to, uh, you know, tweak the tail of the tiger a little, and has had a little fun, but he has been invited to, sp invited to speak uh, to the Pope about this policy and has been given a medal, no less, by the papacy uh, follow, following a presentation on the contemporary relevance of Catholic social teaching. Okay, so what I want to do, obviously there are many, many things you could ask about this and many reasons, I think, to respond with a degree of skepticism, but I'm only going to focus on two things. Which one did we ask for? The so for both of them, when you say they will be, will be more efficient, are you saying that's what you see? Well, that's what the supporters of the policy claim for the policy. Which may or may not be true. Which may, I'm, you know, I'm holding a sceptical position here. That's my yeah. starting point. But they certainly do claim that the benefits are, are real. There is a, I have to say, it's very difficult to be definitive about this because there is a, an economic econometrics literature on it, which by John Addison and that, and it hasn't really been, it hasn't given a clear answer one way or the other, which is not, I think, that uncommon, but it's not, it's not decisive. Okay, so I'm going to focus on just two aspects of feasibility, and this is, so it's really I'm concerned with whether, whether this is a practical, feasible policy which could be adopted by the British Labour Party or any centre-left group in Europe, and whether they could hope to carry this through. Uh, and transform the nature of corporate governance in a substantial way uh, in the current environment. There's two things I want to look at. One is I'm going to focus on whether you can do this sort of thing within the context of European economic governance. Um, it's not at all clear to me that, that even if it was adopted and Labour won election, which is big if, um, they could actually drive it through without challenging or meeting practical obstacles uh, deriving from EU rules, EU laws, EU systems. Uh, and the second one is it's worth looking at as Germany in the sense is the, is the test case for all of this. Looking briefly at what is the evidence that, uh, that certainly the worker empowerment objective element of this policy is actually sustainable uh, in highly competitive markets. Can, is there, is the Works Council, is co-determination in Germany actually functioning 
as advertised according to um, these people. Okay, now looking, starting with Europe, first of all, there's no legal, EU legal prohibition against industrial democracy uh, on the part of the European Union and many states already operate variations on the system. So at that level, the EU is not an obstacle. However, it's also very clear that the EU has in, in recent, sorry, wrong one, um, recent years developed a set of policies which make it in practice, perhaps arguably, in practice much more difficult to actually institute industrial democracy and sustain it and enforce it. Um, the basic question, and there's a big literature, EU literature on this, is at this stage um, the European Union may be too Anglo-American in its economic governance systems to enable or to allow uh, corporate Europe to become more Germanic in its economic governance and its corporate governance. The reason for this, or one of the major reasons, is over the last 20 years, a series of reforms have been introduced, driven through partially successfully, partially unsuccessfully by the European Commission, and predicated uh, on the, the superior virtues of Anglo-American security markets-based models of corporate governance. Uh, so the broad policy thrust has been to open out corporate ownership. In much of Europe, uh, large corporations are, public corporations are controlled by small blocks uh, of shareholders um, and run effectively by those shareholders in cooperation with the management. It's an insider-dominated system. Um, and the European Commission has, has argued forcefully that this is very inefficient. Uh, it, may, it prevents the development of a broader uh, shareholding base. Uh, it's fundamentally undesirable for the system to be insider-dominated. And what this means is, in practice, is that they pursued a, a broad strategy of shareholder protection reform over the last 20 years. So rather than an insider-dominated system, which is what industrial democracy is, uh, a view of the community being the people in the firm, and the firm should be run for the people in the community, uh, the, the American Anglo securities market-based model is a much more open system. And the purpose of corporate governance is to make sure the firm is run in the interest of the outsiders, the shareholders, this dispersed shareholders. So the whole logic of, of shareholder um, pay, linking management pay to shareholder options, all the rest of it was designed to overcome the principal agent pro problem. So it's a completely different starting place. One's a stakeholder model, one's a shareholder model. Uh, and essentially the European Union has been pressing the shareholder module forcefully in the last two decades or so. Um, this is seen in a whole series of legislative initiatives. The takeover directive introduced in, finally in 2003, like everything in the European Union, this is about 30 years in the making. Uh, but the logic, the justification was shareholder, the purpose was to create a, a market for corporate control. Because in Europe, essentially, the w in outside of Britain and one or two other places, there was no market for corporate control. You couldn't have a hostile bid. It wasn't feasible for many practical and legal reasons. And the European Union said, what we need to ensure more responsiveness to shareholders' interests, outside shareholders, minority shareholders, uh, is a proper market for corporate control. Therefore, if a company is deemed to be inefficient or not satisfying the interests of its shareholders, it can be taken over. Management will be forced to become more responsive to the interests of shareholders. Um, so they want to discipline management, stimulate competition, and allow investors. 
but it's a very different logic to industrial democracy. You're actually trying to restructure the market to ensure shareholders' interests predominate and the share price, dividends, etc., are at the centre of management concerns. Um, the second manifestation of this broad policy is a sustained effort to encourage incorporation mobility. Which I'm not sure whether it's only so sad as to know what this is, but basically in Europe, the fundamental idea is that corporations in many countries are trapped within the legal framework of their home country. Uh, if you're in Britain or in Ireland, you can incorporate in that country and then operate anywhere. The rules, the, where you incorporate, they set the corporate governance rules to which the firm is subject. But you can create a firm in Britain and London or Dublin and then actually operate it in Denmark or anywhere. Uh, but what you're, you're governed by the Irish or the British law, but you operate in another country. The real seat rule, which is uh, very common across Europe, including France, Germany, Austria, Spain, and many other countries, is that you are subject, a company is subject to the legal uh, corporate government requirements of the country in which its principal business is undertaken. So it's where its head office is based, is what really matters, uh, not where it's legally incorporated. What this means is that it's very difficult for companies to move, okay? Uh, if you don't like the corporate government's rules, and for our concerns, if some country decided to alter the corporate government's rules, enhance the power of the employees through creating works, works councils or imposing some requirement to allow them board representation, um, under the real seat rules, it's very hard for a, a company in, in that country to escape, okay? Uh, so you're trapped, and therefore, and this is the game always when we talk about the European Union, the question is can countries escape from the, use the European Union to escape from any constraint or unpleasant policy or restriction that they're subject to within their own national legal uh, order. And in, so incorporation mobility uh, has been a major issue, and the Commission has been very concerned. The logic is that they believe if you enable companies to incorporate to shift their incorporation relatively cheaply, um, then essentially they will begin to migrate to the areas of Delaware as the model within the US system. So why is everything incorporated in Delaware? Well, because of the, the particular rules that it lays down are attractive, especially to the shareholder mod model. Um, so they can't, the commission is very much focused on the American model. If we create a market, if we enable companies to move, then they can move to that area, which is, they'd be attracted by cheap capital. Why cheap capital? Because investor protection will be stronger, so therefore people will be prepared to invest uh, at, at cheaper rates, and the whole thing will generate a, an efficiency benefit. Okay. So in practice, what they've done is they try to introduce a directive, 14 directive, uh, on corporate mobility, and Charlie McCreevy was in charge of it, and then he gave up because politically it was too difficult. But in this case, um, the European Court of Justice uh, has effectively done a lot of the work. One of the reasons they gave up on the directive was they thought the court was delivering the same outcome. And on the, basically the court has judged that restrictions on incorporation mobility were clashing with the freedom of establishment, which is a fundamental freedom within the Treaty of Rome. Um, so without getting into the details, the whole series of cases 
from Centro's most famous piece, Cartesio, in 2008, each one of them basically serving to break the link between where the company operates and where it's incorporated, enabling greater degrees of freedom um, for companies to shift if they were. And for, for the question of industrial democracy, this is very important. If a given particular country proceeds to impose a much more onerous, from the point of view of management and shareholders, corporate governance, set of corporate governance rules, which requires them to engage in all sorts of practices and cooperations with the workers that they don't want to uh, engage in, then a, a very important issue is how easy is it for them to escape those rules. When you say operating, you mean where they leave the structure? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a, a legal debate. It's the predominant, usually it's the headquarters and where they do most of their business. But there is a question often resolved by case law about where, whether yeah. a company is deemed to be operating. Something like information technology, somebody could write the software in India, send, send it down the line. It's not, it's not really clear where Google is. Google is everywhere. It can, it can be where it wants, when it wants. You know what I mean? It, I mean, in general, manufacturing stuff, it's like a factory and all. Yeah, but it's also, they also take into account marketing and sales. It's the whole, I mean, in the end, whether a company is deemed to be, its real seat of operations deemed to be an X or Y will be determined in court. So they will, these are, it's a case by case issue. Uh, so it's not something that is easy to define in abstract terms. Um, so the logic of these decisions has been, Cartesio is important because basically uh, in many countries effectively, um, if you wanted to move the country in which you were incorporated, you have to liquidate yourself. You had to commit in the jar, legal jargon, corporate suicide, and then open up in another country. And that involves lots of costs. With Cartesia, they lifted that requirement. You do not have to commit suicide to be reborn in a quasi weirdly religious experience. Um, there are still some restrictions, okay? And case law, the, the history of case law in the European Court and in the European Union generally. Obviously, these are decisions in relation to specific circumstances, and it's not always clear. There's often some ambiguity about how it would apply to the general set of cases, uh, which is why supporters of incorporation mobility still want a directive, which will much more clearly set out the terms and, and uh, uh, provide for a much more uh, unambiguous support uh, and enable companies to move much more freely. But the case law has been very, very significant. Okay, um, the final element is the European Company Statute, which is basically a provision whereby companies, you can incorporate and create a European company. Um, and the European Company Statute was fought over like so many of these uh, legal innovations in Europe for decades. And it was finally agreed in the early noughties and so far it's been a bit of a mouse. In other words, there's only about 100 European uh, companies created. But under this rule, they require some form of worker consultation. They require some sort of counsel, but they don't specify that subject to negotiation. So each company might have a different setup. They may be very weak, they may be strong, depends on the bargaining power of the two sides within the company. But most importantly, what they, there is evidence that in these small number of companies, that in Germany, which of course is the place with the strongest form of industrial democracy, there is evidence that some companies have adopted, have shifted from being incorporated in Germany to taking the European uh, company form precisely when they hit the tr 
threshold whereby they have to give worker representation on the board. Okay, so they just don't want to do that. And they simply said, okay, well, we'll become a European company, which means we can then just negotiate with the workforce what terms we'll give and the confidence that they will give provide for much weaker forms of, of worker representation within the decision-making institutions of the company. So all of these legal, they're not directly, direct, they're not directed to undermine industrial democracy or the feasibility of it, but they are creating conditions where it becomes much more difficult to lock companies in. The obvious alternative strategy is to go above the national level. If you want industrial democracy, let's create a European provision for industrial democracy. And I think I won't spend too much time. This is, in fact, a, my watch is five minutes faster. Is that right? Okay. Um, it's very difficult. The history of European, uh, the European Union is very difficult to actually uh, agree any form of strong form of uh, regulatory change. Uh, the decision-making system is hyper-consensual. It's, it's all of the, all of the initiatives I've mentioned, the takeover directive, first proposed in the 70s, finally agreed in 2001, are almost agreed in 2001, defeated on the casting vote of the chairman of the European Parliament, uh, and then altered again, and then finally agreed and implemented in 2003. Uh, the 14th directive was abandoned, and they relied on the court to make the breakthrough. Um, it's very difficult because of the high threshold uh, for, for positive lawmaking in the European Union to agree anything which really radically, which requires radical change in, the, in corporate law within member states. It's also a lot of research done, uh, Code Pepper, Pepper D. Code Pepper, which has got to be the best name in political science, um, has done a lot of work along with others on the politics of corporate governance reform and effectively what you find is nearly all governments pursue a policy which reflects the uh, interests of their own corporate sectors. In very rare cases does a political party or a country. So even if you elected a centre-left government with a very clear uh, commitment to industrial democracy in one country, most of the other countries, even with socialist centre-left parties, tend to just take the line of, uh, given them by their, their business sectors. Uh, business is very effective at the quiet, so-called quiet politics of corporate regulation. Uh, therefore, building majority in the Council of Ministers, um, a winning QMV, uh, would be likely very, very difficult indeed. Um, and then building a general um, business platform, coalition of European business interests in favour of any sort of reform has proved to be extremely difficult. There's a lot of work. Business basically operates in a constraint thy neighbour. They only support European regulation if they can export a constraint they're subject to nationally. Uh, so that they can impose it on their neighbours. And if that's not the position, they tend to resist regulation. So the decision-making structure of the European Union makes any form of strong regulation extremely difficult to pull off. And I don't know whether any of you are familiar with the tortured history of the European Works Council. Um, this was proposed, effectively, the European Works Council's emerged from an earlier version of this industrial democracy debate. It began in the early 70s with a, a, a proposed fifth directive, which is kind of has mystical status in the history of corporate law, if such a thing is possible, um, which wanted to project onto Europe, the European community at that point, the German model of co-determination. 
Uh, and what happened was a whole series of political resistance. Obviously, the British were opposed, but many other countries were opposed as well. Um, and you ended up creating, finally, 20, 22 years later, the European Works Council. Uh, and it is a significant requirement. All effectively multinational companies operating in more than two countries with more than 150 employees in each and a total of 1,000 have to have a European Works Council. But, and this is the important thing, uh, what that means, its remit, its responsibilities, its powers, even its composition is negotiated on a case-by-case -case basis by each company. So in the jargon, it's a neo-voluntarist system. You have to have it, but what it is that you have is very uncertain. There is an enormous amount of literature, survey literature on how these councils work, and I just picked out a few quotes. Um, and what we get is that in terms of, I started, the attraction for the centre-left is the idea of empowerment combined with efficiency. The evidence is that European Works Councils, management often engages in coercive comparisons. So they, they use the Works Councils to say they're doing it cheaper, they're doing it better in another European country. You better change your ways or we might shift the focus of our investment. Uh, in other areas, uh, Fetzer has found that General Motors, European Works Council, did play an important role. So these institutions have developed significance within the corporate life of many European and American European-based multinationals. Um, but they tended to only do so when they accepted a certain logic, management logic, in terms of what the purpose of the cooperation was about. Uh, in other words, we must transform how we operate or we will die. Uh, and then the, the Works Council has come in behind that agenda. Um, so it may be beneficial in terms of efficiency, but it's much less clearly the case uh, when it comes to worker empowerment, which is the second leg of the centre-left dream. Um, so most of them focus on information and consultation, which is kind of the minimum requirement uh, in, the, in the directive. But Waddington, who is actually uh, really quite supportive and wants, wants to believe, uh, has found that the quality of the information, the quality of the consultation is more often than not, not very impressive. So what you get when you try and regulate at the European level for a European-wide system the compromises required to get it past the Council of Ministers tend to wash away any of the more uh, strong forms and strong requirements which actually will balance the power between the two sides within, within the Council. Uh, so you end up with a, from a German point of view, and a lot of German analysts, especially those who are closely linked to the Social Democratic Party, uh, you can, it's interesting to read uh, Wolfgang Streich is famous, is, is uh, extremely interesting, but also one of the saddest men in academia because they see all of these systems as essentially fundamentally corroding and undermining the sustainability of German co-determination. So rather than Europe as, as, as the new arena in which you could impose this model, the political realities of decision-making and the distribution of preferences among the member states makes it very, very unlikely that you could ever pull this off effectively. Okay, um, none of this I think is to say that it's clear that the European Union is not opposed in any significant way in principle to European democracy. Um, and if you talk to people who work in the Commission, they will always offer you the European Works Councils. They're actually trying to support, I mean in some respects, from the point of view of Britain and Ireland, the European Union required the creation of some Works Councils. 
uh, required consultation and was seen as our European Workers' Council in a country like Germany is seen as a sad departure from the strong form of co-determination, but in Britain was, I remember at the time, uh, portrayed as kind of a, a, you know, the brutal hand of Brussels bureaucracy imposing, you know, socialist, uh, socialist visions on, on, the, on the righteous workers and employers in Britain. Um, but, so I think it would be wrong to say that Europe is against it, but equally I think it's fair to say that the logic of European integration simply works to undermine the feasibility of pursuing these policies at national level. Winning an election is only the beginning of your struggle. The, you would have to, in a sense, win the support of business, a very large swathe of business, to the positive virtues of creating these institutions. If you don't, they have real opportunities within the European legal framework to escape uh, in a way that they wouldn't have had in, um, in previous decades. Okay. So I think I'll leave Europe at that point, as David Cameron regularly says to us. Now the second final, quickly I want to talk about Germany, uh, because Germany is at the centre of this story. Um, the German model is the most developed, I mean I don't know how much, but very briefly, uh, any company with 500 or more employees in Germany up to 1999 has to allow a third of the supervisory board, which is the governing board, our employee representatives. Any company with 2,000 and above, 50% of the supervisory board are, are employee representatives. And in effect, they tend to be trade unionists. They don't, they're not formally trade unionists, but in practice, they are. Um, so at that board, board uh, level representation, it's a very substantial right. Uh, and then any company over five workers has um, a legal right to have a works council if the workers request it, the, the rules are complex, how do you request it? And the reality is that small companies with less than maybe 100 workers frequently don't have works councils. But certainly among the larger, and especially the manufacturing side of the German economy, works councils are a fundamentally central reality of how companies are organized, managed, and run. Um, but at the same time, and this is why Germany attracts the centre-left as a vision of what's possible. They're growing, they're successful in export markets, they've got co-determination. Hey presto, you know, it has to be feasible, it has to be desirable, uh, and it has to be something we, we, we seek to emulate. Um, at the same time, Germany is also a challenge, because in the last 15, 20 years, especially in the last 10 years, it has undergone very extensive policies of liberalization in the labor market, labor market liberalization, the hearts reforms, um, in corporate governance where they try to make takeovers possible. They've also changed the accounting rules partly, partly as a part of a broader international process, all of which has made them much more sensitive to financial market scrutiny than they used to be in the past. They used to be dominated by families or banks or small groups of shareholders and to some extent they didn't really care that much whether their share price was high or low. They frequently misreported profits to smooth the profits over. They did a lot of things which basically in Britain, in the city of London, New York would have been illegal. Uh, and they have been, the capacity to do that has been restricted in the last 15, 20 years. And there is much talk in the literature of the financialization of corporate governance in Germany. They have to pay attention to the metrics, the financial metrics which dominate uh, in security markets about share price etc., etc., dividend opportunity, all the rest of it. Um, so 
Germany has co-determination, co has had, had it for a very long time, but in the last 10, 15 years, it has undergone very significant liberal reforms, which render it somewhat much more close to the British, to simplify to the British uh, structure of uh, economic governance than was the case in the past. And the question arises, can co-determination resist this? Can co-determination function as advertised in this much uh, more liberal economic environment? Um, and the answer is, as ever, a bit of yes and a bit of no. Uh, the question is which bit is yes and which bit is no. Firstly, there is evidence that works councils and the medium to large manufacturing companies remain very, very powerful institutions. Okay? Um, now, most of the evidence, sorry Kevin, most of the evidence is based on, on uh, case studies of different corporate experiences. Not the sort of thing you approve of, but I'm going to rely on it anyway. Um, for example, just give you one example, uh, a Finnish company took over a German lift-making company. The Finnish company was a multinational, had operations around the world, had standard operating procedures, standard management systems, a financial mo model of corporate control, it was target-driven, etc. Uh, and they went to the German company and said, this is the model, this is the way it's going to be. And after two years of bitter infighting, they couldn't do it. The works councils would not accept it, and they had to alter the entire management structure to allow the German company to continue with many of the practices. It was very efficient, very technologically sophisticated, that's why they bought it, um, but they could not shift the model of corporate control. Works councils were central to how practical economic productive life happened in that company, uh, and unless the Finnish multinational was prepared to destroy what, the, what it sought to control, uh, it had to bend and adapt, and it did. So what we see is, even in a world of multinationalization, of international takeovers, et cetera, hostile or friendly, uh, these institutional structures, work councils, can and do continue to exercise major influence over how the company is run. So in that sense, they do empower workers in the daily process of managing the productive um, operation. Um, secondly, there's clear evidence that before I go to secondly, the second uh, manifestation of power is that in response, especially in the early part of the noughties to a, a severe economic crisis in Germany, uh, many companies entered into company agreements with their works council. So how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to survive? How are we going to adapt? How are we going to become more efficient, contain costs and succeed? Um, and the answer, the strategy adopted by many was not to try and get around the works council, not to marginalize them, not to seek to overrule them, but actually to draw them much more firmly into the management process. Uh, so across the manufacturing sector in particular, there was a, a very high number of what's called company agreements specifying in detail new procedures, new work organization patterns, etc., etc. So interestingly, some of these agreements mean work councils now, in response to the stresses of competition and the, and the situation of German industry, which after all is only 10 years since Germany was the sick man of Europe. So you need to be careful about assuming it's the vigorous, healthy marathon runner of Europe. Uh, but 10 years ago, it was a very different environment and these um, works council became central to the strategy developed by companies to survive. Uh, and in return for signing these agreements, many corporations agreed to um, 
invest in training, invest in production, and it was, it was a genuine agreement with real exchange between the two parties. Um, they also often agreed to offer lifetime work guarantees to existing employees. And finally, works councils implement these agreements, which is also a powerful role because interpretation and implementation is always a central aspect of any agreement. The works councils operate fundamentally in that system. So in many ways, works councils have become more central to the competitive strategy, the productive strategy of many large German, medium-sized and large German companies. Uh, it's still, manufacturing is still uh, about 20%. Is it still, I remember looking from far and surprised at how, how small it was. Yeah, in, in Britain I think it's 12%. Yeah. So it's large in Germany but smaller than it used to be. One of the problems which I, I'm going to go into today because as you know by now there's already too much in this, uh, is that this model is Manufacturing is central to German economic success, but this model finds it very hard to take hold in the, in the service sector, in the high-end service sector, because lots of the workers in SAP, for example, do not want to see themselves as collective in that way that industrial democracy requires. So you find that works councils tend to be much less important. So it may be the significance of works councils is partly because manufacturing is so central to the German model. The attraction of Germany to many countries is, in Britain for example, is because financial services, this was, t I mean it really is 10 years, this is all seen as passe, Germany was back in the wrong horse, and financial services were the future. It's all reversed completely, 180 degrees, in a very short period of time. In my judgment would be, it's reversed a little too much, people are exaggerating the virtues of the German model and its capacity to ride out the new challenges. But, um, just quickly, um, secondly, am I on the second? I must be on the second. Okay, so we cover that. What we see is generally we see worse councils being drawn much more fundamentally into what we call in, and what is called in many of the surveys, co-management. Uh, beyond what used to be the remit of worse councils, they're drawn into designing production strategies, new forms of work organizations, practically hands-on in devising how they're going to make the product in a very detailed way. They're actually more central to the, to the companies than they have been in the past. Um, however, while works councils remain extremely important, it has come at a very high price. And this, this price, I think, may be a price certainly in the British Labour Party and British Trade Union movement, which has also come out in favour of this sort of initiative, they might be very reluctant to pay in practice. For example, the, work, the company agreements they negotiate have typically involved pay cuts, longer working hours and more flexible conditions. So they've got investment, they've got training, they've sometimes, in many cases, got forms of work guarantees for a lifetime work, although how, how, how legally watertight they are, I suppose it's quite complicated uh, and varied. Uh, but in many cases, they've paid a very high price for this. It's why when you talk to people, as I have, uh, who are operating these systems, and you tell them how it's read in Britain currently, they can't recognize this happy story because their experience of this is a really harsh environment in the last 10 years. Um, so longer hours, uh, cuts, 
They've also, and this is an important point, is these agreements undermine the very, one of the central logics of, of the German industrial relations system, which was um, sectoral bargaining. There used to be trade unions on sectors agreed broad-based collective pay agreements, etc., etc. And works councils were not meant to be a part of that. They were legally not part of that system. And this was a famous dual system. You had regional trade union negotiated collective bargains, and then you had works councils which dealt with specific uh, plant and, and firm-based issues. What we find is now that the, the company agreements undermine that structure. So the sectoral bargains, there's loads of opening clauses, exemptions, and what the trade union movement has increasingly become the service advisors to works council representatives, and much less the collective solidaristic broad-based representative of working class interest, for want of a better term. Um, so it is corroding substantial elements of the German model of industrial relations. Um, thirdly, is, or in terms of the prices paid, another issue is many analysts say that the security and the, the power that works council members and employees have gained has been partly won at the price of other workers in the secondary labour market. So works councils have benefited from the Hartz reform which created a whole sphere of mini jobs, very insecure, poorly represented, not organised uh, labour in Germany which is really often very poor, 400 euro a month jobs etc. Uh, and these jobs have been successful in creating employment uh, but there's, they lack all of the benefits that you will have if you're in a manufacturing company with a long-term uh, contract covered within the Works Council, exercising power collectively. The argument is that that security has been partly earned on the basis of the insecurity of other workers in a different part of the labour market. Uh, and that companies can afford to offer the security because basically they can engage in the flex, they can gain the flexibility they need uh, in other, from sourcing uh, labour in other parts of the work, uh, labour market. So you have an awful lot of short-term contracts in Germany. So you, you're creating a, always exists to some extent, but a much sharper, uh, more significant dual labour market. Okay. So you, in the literature you see lots of references to bifurcated labour markets. So it's an insider-outsider model. This can work for the workers who already have a job in manufacturing companies, uh, but there are other workers who are not so fortunate and they're actually paying a higher and higher price to sustain this model. Um, and I think sometimes in the Ger German, Germans are good for phrases, the, the, one of the common ones I think is plant egoism. Uh, and this was, when this system was first developed, trade unions were very, very worried the worst councils would compete with them would undermine the solidarity, would simply come to embody a very narrow vision of worker interests, which was, in a sense, shared with the management of a given company. And what you get is an organization, corporate organization, a bit like what used to be aspects of Japan, okay, very company-focused uh, uh, organization. For decades, that didn't happen. And the works councils, the trade unions, developed a very effective working relationship, and they did not compete with each other trade union support for the Works Council. They had a clear line of demarcation about what one did and what the other did. That, to a sense, is collapsing. Uh, and it is ultimately, although the trade unions still offer advice to Works Council, in the longer term, it's, 
it may be that the works councils are becoming effectively rivals uh, and undermining the role uh, and the significance of trade unions. So you plant egoism, uh, you, you will ultimately triumph. And as I nearly finished, uh, cutting a long story short, it is quite long, isn't it? Uh, not cutting a long story short, is I think my basic point is that industrial democracy is an interesting idea. It is clearly in a climate where centre-left parties are struggling for any sort of coherent strategy, which isn't we're like the conservatives or like the right, but we're nicer with a better heart, okay, which is basically where a lot of centre-left parties are. Uh, if, they, if they want to develop a strategy to actually restructure the economy in a significant way and yet survive in what is undoubtedly a, a tough uh, international environment, this is worth examining. But you, I think they have to be more serious about it than they have been to date. Um, the debate has not really taken on board the changes at the European level or the implications of intensifying global market and regional market integration for how in industrial democracy works. There clearly is where these institutions exist, they are playing an important role in enabling companies to adapt. Uh, and in that sense, there is a case to be made that they're productively effective and efficient where they exist. But it's much less clear that they empower workers in the more traditional areas of pay, conditions, etc., or that they empower all workers. They may actually, in the British case, one of the reasons why trade unions in Britain have traditionally been very wary of these proposals, and it's a Labour Party in Britain is on a kind of 25-year cycle of discovering Germany, discovering stakeholderism, not following through, forgetting it, and then rediscovering it during the next crisis. So Blair in his early phase, then in the late 60s, early 70s, they also went through a period. Um, the, but one of the reasons they uh, were wary of it in the past was precisely their concern that industrial democracy in the end threatens the sort of collective solidaristic um, sentiment that is central to at least the ideology of trade unionism, which is not always the practice of trade unions. And I think they need to consider some of these issues much more seriously than they have to date. And I'm going to stop.